Welcome to We Are Meaningful, a podcast where we transform the anonymous experiences of black and brown talent into powerful audio narratives. Each month, we center the dialogue around a common theme, providing you, our listeners, with the tools and resources you need to help navigate, grow, and thrive in corporate spaces. Our stories, experiences, and our voices are meaningful. We are meaningful. How does the interview process change depending on the organization? How does the interview process change depending on the candidate? What are the unspoken rules? Especially if the candidate is a woman. Especially if they're of color. Here's this opportunity. A great educational product that I'm already an avid user of, in fact, a specialist. Check. A great role to expand the market presence and user count. Check. A five-round interview process that consisted of a survey, recruiter call, Zoom team interview, and two panel interview sessions. Check. After two months of courtship, I had graduated to the fourth round. An hour and a half with a panel of women that are credentialed for my industry. We are so proud of our diversity here. That statement lingered in the air as I looked at the panel and could only assume that they were thinking of hair color or geographic location. Mmm, diversity. She continued. We were excited to have you come in and share your experiences with us. Are there any questions that you have for the team? Yes, thank you. Their answers were clear and made sense. Well, ladies, I like what I'm hearing, and I don't have any concerns with the requirements. I'm excited for next steps. We all nodded and smiled in this agreeable unison. So... Given our conversation today, what's your assessment of me for this role? I asked. Dead silence in the room, like the air had been sucked out with that statement. Well, that is a very good question, and we're going to have to think about it. The response was empty. Three days later, an email informed me that I will not be moving forward to the next round. It took another week to get an answer when I responded asking for feedback. The feedback, besides the comment that they don't get feedback, was that other candidates were a better fit for the position. Then I noticed the role was reposted after our discussion. Now I have to sit on my questions. If I wasn't qualified, why did it take four rounds to diagnose that? Why was the role reposted if other candidates were better? Now I have to sit in my truth. Do I regret asking the question? Should I not have? No. That's a basic question. And I thought it was fair game for everyone to use. Or is it? For whom is that format truly for? For whom was that opportunity truly for? 
On this week's episode, we're discussing unspoken rules with Kelly Newman Mason, founder and CEO of Culture Keys, an initiative of Notley Ventures. Culture Keys is a platform that connects underrepresented professionals with inclusive Austin-based employers where they can thrive. Kelly formerly served as head of people operations and talent at several successful startups and is a graduate of Rice University and Stanford Law School. Kelly, welcome to We Are Meaningful. We're excited to have this conversation with you today about the narrative that we've just heard. So what were your reactions to the unspoken rules narrative? And is this story familiar to you? And if so, how? Yes, well, unfortunately, um, it's it's very familiar to me. Um, it's familiar and disheartening. You know, the whole time I was listening to her speak about, you know, sitting in her questions and wondering what happened. I thought, no, you didn't do anything wrong. They were using you. And more importantly, they don't deserve you. Um, You know, I don't know the entire story, but from what I've heard, uh, it isn't the first time I've heard something like that. Um, I think that probably at some point the hiring team knew they weren't going to give her an offer. Uh, They either wanted to pat themselves on the back for getting a quote unquote diversity candidate through four rounds of interviews. Um, or maybe they wanted to avoid having to give her difficult feedback. Um, you know, that's a problem that uh, women face and women of color in particular. Uh, people are biased to think that women are going to be overly sensitive if you give them negative feedback or women of color are going to respond with anger if you give them honest feedback. And so when you've got that bias, you end up not giving any feedback. And what I know from my experience in HR is people need feedback to do better. And so when um, women of color, when women are being left out of these conversations where they can get feedback, they don't, they don't learn what they need to do to do better next time. Um, so yeah, so it's a familiar narrative. And I think it was either the, you know, we're so proud of our diversity. We want to pride ourselves for getting someone of color through, through the interview process, or we're afraid to give this angry woman of color some, some negative feedback. Yeah. And I love that you brought up the part about giving feedback and people not wanting to give feedback because they're afraid of what it might sound like. But just from our time following each other on LinkedIn, for example, there are so many people who go through several rounds of interviews. And just as it was stated in the narrative, everyone nodded in this agreeable unison, like, okay, everything is great. We're all on the same page. And then all of a sudden, you don't get the offer and you're sitting there like, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? But companies do not give feedback. I've probably heard of a couple that have, but it's not standard practice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I think the kind of unspoken rule that you're uncovering here, Kelly, is that skills can really only be taught if you're like me. So if you're not like me, I can't give you feedback and therefore you can't truly learn in this space. If I don't feel comfortable with who you are, then I'm not able to grow you. So that it ends up creating kind of this silo where women of color aren't actually learning, right? And they're not Mm -hmm. able to grow in those spaces. And along that same, you know, vein of learning and development, there are so many organizations talking about commitments to diversity at the C-suite level and the tactics implemented end up having these like contradicting consequences. So what's an example where you've seen that happen time and time again? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of things in the uh, diversity and inclusion world um, where people have an idea and they run with it and they're not really putting uh, numbers behind it or, or questioning what the unintended consequences might be. Um, one example that I've seen that has gained a lot of popularity in the DNI space over the past few years is bringing the Rooney Rule into the corporate space. So for people who aren't familiar, the Rooney Rule is an NFL policy that requires the league teams to interview ethnic minority candidates for any open head coach or senior job. Um, unfortunately, that rule was introduced, I believe, in 2003. We're almost 20 years later, and only three of the 32 teams in the NFL have a black head coach. Um, wow. So recently, yeah, looking at that, um, this NFL commentator said, he, he summed it up well. He said that regardless of its intended purpose, the Rooney Rule has become an exercise in checking a box. And any of us who have done diversity and inclusion work know checking a box that is sometimes the name of the game. Uh, that is sometimes all people want. Um, but anyway, we're seeing similar unintended consequences unfold for companies that have uh, have implemented versions of the Rooney Rule. And you know, I think that that's possible. That's possible that that's what was going on with the uh, story and the narrative. Um, you see that candidates are spending time going on interviews, and they're taking time out of work to go on these interviews and bending themselves over backwards. And then they're not getting the offer and they're wondering, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? They're not getting feedback. When it turns out, you know, it's possible they just got caught up in the Rooney rule and it's possible that the hiring manager was stringing them along so that they could check the box and say, yes, I interviewed a woman or a person of color for this role. I had no intention of hiring them, but I'm able to check the box and say, I've, you know, I've completed the Rooney rule requirements. Um, so I know that the people who introduced these types of processes into hiring meant well, but that's definitely something I've seen that's had an unintended consequence. And actually, in my opinion, it's it's worse than having nothing in place. Mm. I almost feel like it's it's even like saying that there's no way I could go out here and find someone who's diverse and qualified. Mm-hmm. So I just need to find this person who appears to be underrepresented, put them in the pool just so I can check the box. And it's really important to remind people that diversity and quality aren't mutually exclusive. Exactly. I mean, that that is probably something driving it is this belief that I'm not going to find a qualified candidate, not because I'm not doing the work and putting it in front of diverse pools, but because they're not falling in my lap. So I'm not going to find them. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with Kelly, right? I know that it's a rule that exists and maybe sometimes of the way in which it's executed or perpetuated doesn't always have the best values behind it. But I think that if these rules didn't exist, we wouldn't otherwise even have an opportunity or be considered for a seat at the table. So I, I think it's important that the policies exist. It's just that we need to figure out a way that they become more authentic in the way that they're executed. Yes. And to that point, I think that we often hear people who aren't putting these rules into place saying things like diversity is squishy, it's a nice to have, but it doesn't really drive business results. So our question to you, Kelly, is what can leaders do to make sure that these types of tactics are not counterproductive to their stated commitments to diversity and inclusion? 
So yeah, I think it's important to stick with the facts and the data and look at what's actually working versus what feels nice. And it's so interesting to me because a lot of these leaders, particularly in tech companies, they're so driven on numbers. They want to see, they want to see the numbers. They want to see the data. But when it comes to diversity inclusion work, they don't want to see the numbers. They don't want to measure where they currently are with the representation of black and brown employees or with women in leadership roles. So they make excuses for why they don't want to get that information. Because of course, they don't want to see what's there. They don't want to be confronted with the fact that their population is only 1% black or only, you know, 3% of leadership roles are occupied by women, whatever it might be. Um, And then when it comes to implementing programs, we also know that certain things work, like insisting on structured interviews or tying your bonuses to hiring and retention quotas. These things actually work. uh, And then there's certain things that don't work, like making mandatory um, trainings around unconscious bias. In fact, some research, and I won't get into it, but some research has shown that that can actually have unintended consequences again and get people less likely to want to um, support diversity inclusion in the workplace. But anyways, these same people who insist on data-driven thinking everywhere else, they fall back on the easy hour-long lunch and learn about bias. And they think, you know, oh, I've done my diversity and inclusion work for the year because I sat through a lunch and learn, right? Um, But they don't want to do the hard work and the work that has been proven effective to actually increase demographic representation engagement. Um, So I think with this, leaders need to tie numbers to diversity enough efforts the same way that they tie numbers to any other company initiative um, that contributes to the bottom line and recognize that diversity and inclusion does contribute to the bottom line. It helps unlock um, productivity, creativity, innovation, um, products and services that are more responsive to your consumer base. Time and again, research has shown that this matters, that this actually makes a difference to the bottom line. But for some reason, again, like you said, it's squishy. People want to call it squishy. They want to say it's a nice to have. They don't want to actually acknowledge and then put in the work required to recognize that this is this drives business results. Yes, absolutely. And then to your point about the numbers, it's funny because when when companies uncover things, they have a responsibility to fix it. So if a company uncovers that people are being uh, paid unequally in the company, they're supposed to go address it. So if they uncover things like this, where they note that, hey, we aren't hiring any black and brown people into this company or the black and brown people that are here, they leave within six months and their attrition rate is two times higher than everyone else. If they don't uncover it, they don't have to face it and they don't have to do anything about it. Exactly. Right. And I'm going to take it a little off script for a second, but it's just because I think it's so relevant. Uh, There was recently a post on LinkedIn, right, where somebody was talking about what needs to happen first. And it's that uh, we have to lay the soil of authenticity and inclusive work before we can start asking people of color to come into the organization. And me and Crystal always have this debate of, is it chicken? Is it egg? Which comes first? Do we lay the soil or do we recruit as many people of color as possible into the organization and then use that mass voice to have a bigger conversation? When we're asking questions like, who owns the commitment to diversity? It is truly everyone. So we all have a responsibility in pushing forward these conversations. Go ahead, Crystal. I know you're going to say it. I'm waiting for you to say it. Go ahead, say it. (laughs) I wasn't going to say anything. What do you mean? The only only thing I'm thinking is that it's just so hard. It's Mm -hmm. it's so difficult (laughs) to decide 
what do we do first? Yes, you should be doing the same thing at the same time. But what stresses me out is that we invite black and brown people into our companies, knowing that they are not safe spaces. And then we traumatize them and then they leave and they take this with them moving forward. And I've been in situations where I joined a company and I'm the person who is always going to say, hey, you should come work with me. My job is great for whatever reason. And if I can't support the company in that way to um, entice other people to come in and really feel good about it, I can't, I just can't work there. I've left jobs for that reason, because I don't trust asking people who look like me to come into the company because I don't want them to be traumatized. And I know you have a perspective too, Kelly. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I've got my personal experience and I've got what I'm working on right now. Um, Personally, I used to be a lawyer and I was in a firm that was very predominantly white male. Uh, Every time we had a diverse candidate of any background coming through for interviews, they would put me on the interview panel. And it just depended on the the time of day, the day of the week, the month of the year. Sometimes I would just be all about it. You've got to join. (laughs) You know, and I kind of felt like sometimes I was tricking people because I wanted more black and brown people. I wanted more women in the office. Uh, And then other days I would, I would literally tell people, you know, I had a law student, I'll never forget. And I just told him, just drop out of law school. This is not the field. This is not the industry. Do something else. Save yourself. (laughs) Run away. Um, So it is tough. It's like, I need people, from my personal experience in that law firm, I needed more people like me who would be willing to take up the cause and advocate for more inclusion in that workplace. But then on the other hand, I, I, exactly, I didn't want to traumatize these people. I didn't want to trap them, trick them into something mm-hmm. where I knew that they would be disrespected, uh, devalued and, you know, deal with the mental health outcomes of that. Yeah. Um, so it is tough. Uh, and then professionally with culture keys, the initiative I'm working on right now, we're trying to help companies attract and engage diverse talent. Every company wants to recruit black and brown people. Not every company wants to put in the work, uh, to be, to be the type of inclusive place where I feel comfortable sending, sending unrepresented employees and professionals. Right. And we know the, we know the work is ahead of us once we enter an organization, right? We know that so often the burden is put on our shoulders to carry these initiatives and to kind of perpetuate these journeys throughout our different departments and our teams. But as black and brown talent, before we're even in an organization, like what can we do in the interview process to show our value and stay top of mind for recruiters and hiring managers? Yeah, for sure. Um, So, you know, you've heard the saying, you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. Um, Unfortunately, right, I think that uh, until we all make more gains with the inclusion work that we're doing, that's the best advice that I can give um, Black and Brown professionals during the interview process. Um, So it's just putting in more effort, putting in more time. Um, All of the best practices, I can repeat them, but, you know, Tailor your resume and your cover letter so that it's very uh, tailored to the job description rather than sending out a generic one. That's going to help you stand out um, and get past the the resume review stage. Uh, If you're doing a phone interview, make sure that you're somewhere where they can hear you properly. I mean, I don't even want to dive into 
Lord, research on um, communication and perceived communication, depending on is it a white person, is it a black person, is it an Asian or Latinx person speaking. Um, so make sure that they don't have any excuse to say that they didn't hear you or couldn't understand what you were saying um, for phone interviews. Uh, if you're doing a video interview, you know, present it as if you're doing an on-site interview. So put on your business casual, make sure that the background is professional. Um, make sure that if you've got roommates or kids, they're not barging in, uh, have a notepad ready to, to take notes and, uh, questions that you might have during the interview process. Um, on the onsite interview, you know, show up early, make sure that you've got time to park, make sure you're not, you know, falling into that bias, right? We all know CPT <laughs> um, and whether the recruiters know it or not, uh, whether the hiring team knows it or not, that's the, uh, the biases. That's one of the biases you might be up against. Um, so, so get there on time, but then on the other hand, don't get there too early. This is from my experience, having been in the role as, as a recruiter in a past life, um, you don't really want candidates showing up 15 or 30 minutes early. That just creates like a big, a big wrench in your day. Um, so that's just, you know, just a little side note from my experience. Uh, and then as far as staying top of mind, um, you really want to balance the line between being aggressive, right? That's another bias that we have to face as people of color that we're aggressive. Um, so you don't want to be messaging the recruiter every third day asking what's the status update. Um, but you also do want to stay top of mind. So I think probably a happy medium there is after each stage of the interview, just follow up with them and say, you know, I really enjoyed my phone screen with whomever, you know, I really enjoyed the video interview. I enjoyed meeting with different people at the onsite follow up after each stage and reaffirm how excited you are. Um, and that's really enough to stay top of mind. Yeah, absolutely. I thought those were some great tips. What I would also add is to also just be authentic, be mm, who you sure, are. Yeah. Um, don't try to be someone who you're not. Of course, you want to make sure there's no background noise, your own time, dot, dot, dot. Um, but be yourself. I think that by showing people who you are, being transparent, being vulnerable, people will remember you because you're not a carbon copy of everyone else that they've seen all day. That's true. And it also, you know, we sometimes joke in this, uh, in the talent acquisition space, um, what's the saying? Interviews are meetings of two liars. And so the candidate is saying, <laughs> I've never how, heard this. yes, the candidate <laughs> is lying about how great they are and how perfect they are. And the company is lying about how perfect they are. Uh, neither one is perfect. Uh, it's just about finding the right fit. And if you're lying your way through the interview or being someone you're not thinking that that's what you need to do to succeed at this company, then like, then in the long term, that's not going to be the right place for you. You know, if you can't show up authentically to an interview, then you're not going to be able to show up authentically day in and day out. Um, and you deserve better. You deserve a place where you can show up authentically. So we have really enjoyed having this conversation with you today. And although we're connected to you online, we're sure that our listeners want to know where can they find you online? I'm really just on LinkedIn. <laughs> it's my social media of choice. Um, I think I have a Twitter. I think I have an Instagram. I think, you know, I have all of these. I really don't, don't log in. Um, but LinkedIn, I'm Kelly Newman Mason and happy to connect. Thanks, Kelly. Obviously for being here, giving us your time, but also 
just for helping us uncover some unspoken rules around diversity work in general in our corporate spaces. And I loved how you gave us these actionable solutions that we can take back to our organizations, but that we can also start implementing for ourselves. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the We Are Meaningful podcast. Follow us on Instagram at wearemeaningful.co and visit our website to learn more about our community and how you can get involved. We're excited to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Talk to you next week.